this morning, we are continuing. We've got a, we're spending eight weeks uh, talking about courage and fear. And just as I was praying about where we would dive in this fall, I, I really feel, I don't want to overuse this sort of a statement, uh, but I really did feel led of the Lord to this in a very clear, unambiguous way. Just really felt called of God that He wanted us to spend some time thinking about, talking about courage and, of course, fear. And so far, we've spent two Sundays on the topic, um, two, three, I lose count, two, I think. <laughs> Greg is saying, yeah, two. Um, we talked the first Sunday about God's commands to fear not. Fear not, God says to us. And of course, we talked on that Sunday morning about how you wouldn't have fears if you were like God. If you were God-like, you wouldn't feel a smidgen of fear ever. So how can God tell non-gods, fear not? In other words, non-gods be like me in my emotional state. And the reason is because although you do lack God-like powers, you don't lack God. And this is really the point of all of life. God made us that He might be glorified in us, that He might be shown to be excellent, promise-keeping, faithful, that He is a great need-meeting God. Have you ever thought for a moment that your need exists so that God can be shown to be a faithful shepherd? But when need shows up in my life, I want to be the shepherd. I want to be without need. I don't want to have to depend on a God for that. And this is very much the spirit of the first Adam, who decided in the garden tragically that it would be better if I were a God than if I had to continue trusting in a God. This is the same sin that confronted the early church when people came amongst the early Christians and said, Jesus did his part, but you also have to observe certain rites and rituals. You have to do certain things. You must also save yourself. Essentially what they said was, wouldn't it be great to save yourself instead of having to trust in a Savior? And now all of us in the midst of our fears are like sheep who wish we were the shepherd, who want to seize shepherd-like powers. But you can't. <laughs> you can't. And so fear is just this spiral where you're, you're just ravaged with these horrible feelings, and then your inner solution is to become something you can never be, and so instead of resting in the God you have, in the midst of your fears, you're just circling, trying to become like God, and you can't. How am I going to come up with the money? How am I going to get it done? How am I going to do this? How am I gonna... But somehow, you need to break that cycle and say, wait a minute, I have a shepherd. <laughs> I... He's the one who's promised that he'd take care of me and meet my needs. And then last Sunday, so that was our first Sunday, we talked about fear not. You lack God-like powers, but you don't lack God. Last Sunday, we talked about the fear of man. We spent some time with Peter, who had as a habit sin this recurring habit of replacing Jesus as Lord with hard-hearted, confused people <laughs> all the time. He, he changes what he does, what he celebrates, what he enjoys, what he says publicly to meet the expectations of these people that, for whatever reason, he feared their re response. And this is a fear that's especially present in our culture today. Now, this Sunday, I want to take up another species of fear, if we can call it that. I don't know if you can divide fear out into different speciation, or even if that's a word. I'm not good at English, but there it is. I want to talk this morning about the fear of the unknown. I think this is an especially uh, hard fear, um, because it is basically being afraid of anything and everything, a little bit. Like I can remember um, when Sarah and I were living in Florida, and we had made the difficult decision to move from Florida to northern Maine to come pastor here. Guys, I saw no red flags, <laughs> none at all. 
I wasn't thinking there were going to be difficult people here, or at least I was, didn't have a person identified or anything like that. But guys, I was full of fears in that season in Florida. Why? It was the fear of the unknown. That's an awful far way to go. What if it doesn't work out? What if they don't like me? What if they end up being jerks? <laughs> what, if, what if they don't ever have a Mexican restaurant, which they do now? I mean, I, my fears ran the gamut from big to little, and all of them failed to come to focus on anything real. My fear of the unknown in that season was nebulous. It was this swirl of ominous possibilities that failed to land with specificity on any one thing, and I was just paralyzed, and it's possible in the midst of such a season to just pull the plug on the whole thing. Here, in my current context in Florida, I might have said, I at least understand the dynamic. Financially, I've got this figured out-ish, <laughs> Right? I know who the people are, I know, you know, but up there, that's just a big question mark. Why am I doing this? In our Bibles, there are many different examples of people who faced an uncertain future and for whom following God meant stepping out into the unknown. I'm thinking of people like Ruth, who left all her support systems behind in Moab and without any safety net or reason to hope, inexplicably, follows her mother-in-law, Naomi, a woman who has no prospects, just a, into a big old question mark of a future. You just read the book of Ruth, and she is walking out on a tightrope, and you go, Ruth, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm thinking of Joseph, sold into slavery. What did he know of the future as he's riding in the Ishmaelite caravan down to Egypt? That's a big old question mark of a place. How would he be received? What was going to happen there? I'm thinking of Abram and Sarai who famously left their home in Haran to go to a place that God had promised them, but God did not give them the address. Didn't tell them where it was. Didn't tell them when it would happen. Didn't tell them all the things that would happen along the way. Just go. And on the way, we'll figure it out. Just yesterday, I left from the convention in Massachusetts, and my brother John and his wife Lisa and me and Sarah, we were talking about where we were going to eat lunch because we were going to both head home at the same time. We were going to eat lunch somewhere. And we went back and forth. We couldn't figure out where to eat. And finally, my brother John just threw up his hands and said, we'll figure it out on the way. And I was like, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> And uh, anyway, it ended up being this very stressful thing for me anyway. Sorry, John, if you're listening. But it's hard to just strike out not knowing. I struggle with that. Or what about Mary and Joseph? Two scared, poor teenagers trekking toward Bethlehem with an amazing secret between them, but a lot of question marks surrounding how that was going to happen. God, how are you going to make this work? <laughs> Just a lot of questions. And again, fear of the unknown is a particularly difficult form of fear because, again, it just refuses to take the shape of anything definite. It's one thing, as I said in the midweek email, to face a monster that you can see and understand. I would almost prefer a bear in my kitchen than the fear that a bear might come in <laughs> someday. Or something might. If you can see and understand something, that's different than fearing everything and every possibility and every potentiality. It's paralyzing. It's choking. A fear of the unknown flourishes in the shadowy world of what is possible, what could be, and not what actually is, at least not yet. A fear of the unknown tends to grow and multiply into this just suffocating swirl of potential. And with all of its ever-shifting variables, this fear can paralyze us very easily and keep us from moving forward in obedience. To be sure, I am not saying that a fear of the unknown is silly. I'm not saying that. And I'm not saying that a fear of the unknown is simply the product of an overactive imagination. 
I don't want you to imagine me as I talk about the fear of the unknown like a parent showing up at their little kid's bedside and saying, there is no monster. Brothers and sisters, there are monsters, and they are altogether real in this fallen world. I think oftentimes our fear of the unknown, although it hasn't been actualized, is at least informed by our experiences in reality. You might fear that some tragedy might befall you or the people you love because you've experienced that in your past, or you've witnessed it happen to others. And guys, in all truth, I'm not going to paint this any other way, we live in a scary world. We hear scary stories all the time, true stories. And sometimes our own fears come true. We are going to devote a Sunday morning to that question. What happens when my fears come true? What about that? What does the God of the Bible say when all these things that I live under the fear of them actually happen? Then what? Let's talk about that on a Sunday coming up. I'm looking forward to it. I think God does have some things to say. But here's some. This morning we want to talk about the fear of the unknown, the fear of the potential, the fear of the possible that paralyzes us and keeps us from ever taking a step in obedience. If Abram and Sarai had been governed by a fear of the unknown, we wouldn't have whole chunks of the Old Testament Bible. They would never have left Haran. They would have lived there and lived a safe-ish, comfortable, but irrelevant life that now we would not study and celebrate. But take as an example Esther. Esther's fears, if you know anything about the book of Esther, were not silly or unfounded. The monster was not imaginary. It was real. In fact, its name was Xerxes. And when she says, I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. There is the question there of if she'll perish or not. Going to the king to do what she had to do involved the fear of the unknown. She was not sure of her reception. And there's a lot of uncertainty surrounding her mission. She doesn't know if she'll survive the attempt. But Esther demonstrates this amazing, great, faith-filled courage in the face of the unknown, which is to say that her fears didn't her fears of the unknown did not ultimately paralyze her and keep her from doing what her God commanded. She said, if I die, I die. That's possible. But I'm not going to be governed by that. I'm going to go do what I've been commanded. Or take David's general Joab as another example. He's a less known biblical figure, but you find him throughout um, the Old Testament books of 1 and 2 Samuel, other places as well. He was really David's top general, his strong man, if you will. In 2 Samuel 10, we find him about to go into battle against a larger armor, and he tells, uh, larger army, I'm sorry, and he tells his little brother, Abishai, also a general, he tells him, be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. I love that. (laughs) May the Lord do what seems good to him. Again, just like Esther, the end result of the battle is really unsure to Joab. He's not speaking from a place of certainty about the outcome at all. But he trusts God to do whatever seems good to him. Presumably, that includes the very real and frightening possibility of defeat. Joab seems possessed with a clear understanding of two things. First, in this moment at least, he holds a clear, unambiguous idea of what obedience requires of him. He knows the right thing to do. And I think very often this is true for believers today. Oftentimes we know exactly what is right. We know what we should do, but the fear of the unknown and the uncertainty of the outcome paralyzes us and keeps us from acting on what we know we should do. Joab here has a clear idea. He says, we're going to be courageous, we're going to fight, we think that's the right thing to do. 
And then second, the second thing that he possesses is a belief in the wisdom, a bedrock assumption of the goodness and sovereignty of God. Joab, in saying God will do whatever seems good to him, believes that the outcome is up to God and God is good. Joab's faith was strong, it seems, as he went into battle, even though he did not know if they would win or lose, live or die. His faith found expression not in a belief that they would win the battle, but that fighting the battle was the right thing to do, win or lose, and that God would ultimately do whatever seemed good to him. And by inference, again, in the mind of Joab, whatever seemed good to God would be what is good, period. I think we see something very similar in the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're going to study them in coming weeks, so I won't spend much time on it now. But when they refused to bow down before the, um, the idol that had been raised, and they're told, we're going to throw you in the fiery furnace, you're going to die. They said, we believe our God could save us, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to do this thing. Again, very much like Joab. <laughs> He can save us if he wants, but I know the right thing to do, and I trust God to do whatever is good, whatever is best, whatever is most needed. I think about uh, David. Do you remember when we studied the life of David and he took his, his aging parents to Moab? Saul was hunting him down, trying to kill him. He takes his parents across the border, and he tells the king of Moab, please let them live under your care and protection while... God does what seems good to him. That's what he said. While we wait to see what God will do. I think those were his exact words. I'm paraphrasing. But again, it's the same spirit. It's the same spirit. Too often we confuse faith in God with the idea that we deserve something from him. Or that what we want is what is best. There's a great humility in what Joab says here or David, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Esther. They don't presume to know the outcome, but they trust God to be good in the doing of it. Faith is not a belief in a desired outcome. It is resting in the goodness and sovereignty of God, come what may. God is a good God, and He is always working for our best interest. His plans are to prosper you and not to harm you. However, we have to trust Him even when when what He allows into, into our lives does not line up with our own view of what we would have liked. Like Joab, when confronted with the fear of the unknown, we should do what we know is right and trust God to do whatever seems good to Him. Of course, as I've pointed out on previous Sundays, we would not have a fear of the unknown if we possessed a godlike omniscience, if we were all-knowing as He is. However, God has not chosen to grant us greater knowledge of what the future holds, at least not exhaustively. He does sometimes give us knowledge of what the future holds, and that is also, we're going to talk about that in just a second, a help to us in the unknown. But although He doesn't often grant us greater knowledge of what He's about to do, Instead, he asks us to trust him who does know all things. Again, you were made not godlike, so that by putting your trust in God, he might be glorified. You don't know all things precisely so that you can with confidence rest in faith in the all-knowing nature of your God. When you don't know the future, but you rest in the one who does, you proclaim that he is a good shepherd. Time and time again in His Word, God calls us to answer the fear of the unknown with a trusting trusting confidence in Him. Because after all, again, we lack God-like powers, but we don't lack a God. We can't fill in all the blanks, but we rest in the One who does know all those things. And He is good. He is for you. So when the fear of the unknown grips our hearts, we can rest in an all-knowing shepherd God who has promised to never leave us nor forsake us and who is always working for our good. 
So Esther, Joab, Ruth, all examples of people who stepped out into the unknown, armed with a faith-filled courage, a clear understanding of what obedience required, and a belief, a bedrock belief that God is in control and He's good. But they, had no, they were given no promised outcome from God. However, other times, and this is interesting to think about, other times in our own lives maybe, and in the experience of the people that we study in the Bible, God does give them a promised outcome. He just doesn't let them know how it's going to happen. This also happens in the Christian life and in the Bible. It's not always that God doesn't say how it's going to end up. Sometimes He does. You really can't put God in a box. He refuses to be reduced to a simple formula. And even as I wrote the first half of this part of my sermon, I was like, oh yeah, but there's that. (laughs) Now, both are true. You, You remember when Joshua was about to lead the Israelites into their first bit of conflict in the promised land, the first obstacle was Jericho, and God's plan for the taking of Jericho was to go and march around the city a bunch of times and then blow the trumpets and the walls would come down. This is what God said would happen. I've always marveled in that moment because Joshua went back to the people and said, this is what's going to happen. We're going to march around the city a bunch of times, big old conga line, (laughs) and then when I give the command, after the seventh time, blow those trumpets and the walls are going to come down. I know just as a human being, I would have felt uncertainty and fear in that moment before the walls actually came down. If they didn't, I would have egg on my face as a leader. I told the people this is what was going to happen. God, please do it. (laughs) You know? Even there, there's fear of the unknown, but he did give them a vision of what was going to happen. I'm thinking of uh, the promise that was given to Joseph. Remember, Joseph had the two dreams before he was ever sold into slavery in Egypt, And God gave him those visions to sustain him through those long years of unknown stuff in captivity down in Egypt. Or I'm thinking of you and me while we wait for the promised day of Jesus' return. We live in the midst of incredible unknown stuff that makes us fear. But God has ministered to us in the midst of all that is unknown by giving us one crystal vision for what will happen. And he has not spared detail. He's given us lots of words that we can hang our hopes off of about what will happen. And we're to encourage one another with that vision, even in the midst of the fearful unknown of these present days, that there is a coming day. All of your sufferings have a shelf life. And there is a promised day when Jesus is coming back for a day of wrath and reward. And we hang our hat on that for sure. So it occurs to me that your difficulty this morning as you face the unknown, I don't know if you're struggling with fear of the unknown this morning. And fear of the unknown just runs a huge spectrum. It's fear of the unknown that keeps the young man from asking the girl out on a date. <laughs> That's a fairly minor thing. But Nevertheless, it is fear of the unknown that keeps you from doing that. How will I be received? What will she say? Does she feel the same way about me that I feel about her? All these things are going on. And it goes all the way up to very serious things. Like the mission field. Or do I move? Or what? All these things are happening, and these are very big things, and the fear of the unknown can paralyze you and keep you from ever taking a single step. And so I want you to know this morning, as you face the unknown, you may be struggling to believe in the outcome that God has assured you of. When everything you see seems to indicate that it's impossible, that might be true. God may have given you a clear vision of what will happen. It's just to all outward senses, to your vision, to your natural sight, it doesn't seem possible. 
Or you might be struggling to find the courage to do what you know, what you know is right. Even though God has given you no encouragement regarding the outcome, you just know what is right, you believe God is on the throne, but you're not assured of how this is going to go, and that's your struggle. All you have is a strong sense of conviction and a belief in the sovereignty and goodness of God, and it's hard. Fear of the unknown is a difficult one, and it's one we all experience. What I do know, though, is that very often into the unknown, you know, if I wrote a check and I wrote my name on the bottom of the check, what is a check but a promise that the money is there, <laughs> right? It's a, it's a promise. If I wrote you a check for 20 bucks and I signed my name on the bottom, I'm saying this money exists to cover it. And in our Bibles, we have all of these promises from God that He's put His signature to, as it were. And with your God, performance is the exact same as promise. When He makes a promise to us that He'll never leave us or forsake us, that He's the one who helps us, that He would never call us to something and then give, not give us what we need to see it through. All these things that exist in the Bible, and we could, we could quote a long list of biblical promises to shore us up in the midst of the unknown, are written, as it were, as a promissory note from a God who never fails to keep His promises. I love it in 2 Corinthians 5. Um, if you read... Um, the verse that's always quoted is verse 7, uh, but verse 6 and verse 8 both begin with this. And verse 6 begins, so we are always of good courage. Verse 8 says, yes, we are of good courage. And in verse 7, right in the middle, it says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. <laughs> this is the substance of the unknown, right? If you could see, it wouldn't be the unknown. But Paul is saying to them, you can walk with good courage because you walk by faith, not by sight. You trust in the, the promissory notes from God. You believe He's with you. You believe in His goodness and His sovereignty. You believe He would not call you to something and then not give you what's needed when you're there. The story of the Exodus when God brought His people out of Egypt is like one long running battle with the fear of the unknown. It was the fear of the unknown that prompted Moses to ask God in the burning bush, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Can't you just feel the fear of the unknown hanging off of that sentence? Who am I to walk into the household of Pharaoh <laughs> and start telling him what's going to happen? And who am I to go to the Israelites? Why would they put their trust in me as a leader? God, I don't know. If I go down there, this is not going to work out. This is, the, this is very much the spirit of this sentence. You can feel it. And God answers them, by the way, in the very next sentence, I'll be with you. Just trust in me. Just go do what you know is the right thing to do and trust me. Trust me to be your shepherd when you're doing it. It was the fear of the unknown that caused some of the Israelites to hoard manna, gathering more than they needed over and against God's prohibitions against it. Sure, God provided today, they thought for themselves, when the manna is all over the ground, but is He really going to show up with this stuff tomorrow? I'm just going to take a little more. Guys, that's the fear of the unknown. After being delivered out of Egypt, so strong was their fear of the unknown that they actually expressed a desire. Guys, multiple times in the Bible, they came to Moses and they said, it would be better for us to go back to slavery in Egypt than face the uncertainty of a desert life. They said in Numbers 11, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. And then they said... In Exodus 16, the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out of this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. <laughs> 
When they're enslaved in Egypt, they want deliverance. But now that they're out here, they're like, well, this is kind of scary, this future. At least the devil we knew back in Egypt might be better than the devil we don't, which is this nebulous swirl of ominous possibilities hanging out there in front of us. The fear of the unknown, by the way, when they came to the promised land for the first time, right? The spies brought back their report. They preferred the desert to the unknown, ominous possibilities on the far side of the Jordan. They're shrinking back from the promised land the first time, 100% fear of the unknown. They're going to kill us over there, maybe. They're maybe bigger and stronger than us. Maybe it won't work out. Let's just stay here in the desert that we hate rather than go over to this other place that we fear. The Israelites' fear of the unknown was rooted in unbelief. And this is really important, I think. They were not atheists. They believed in God. I don't think there would have been an atheist among them, hardly, even if they probably didn't even have a word for it back then. Their problem was not that they didn't believe in God's existence. Their problem was that in the midst of the fear of the unknown, they began to wonder if maybe God wasn't who they thought He was. I know He exists, but maybe He doesn't actually care about us. Maybe He's angry with us. Maybe he's forgetful. Maybe he doesn't keep his promises, any of all that. Maybe he's not who he says he is. This is at the root of their impulse to hoard manna. They knew that the manna was from God. They knew that God existed. They just weren't sure he was going to show up. This isn't a disbelief in God. This is wondering if maybe God's not who I thought he was. All fear has an element of unbelief, but the fear we experience when the future looks scary and uncertain is especially derived from a lack of faith. It makes us question God's goodness, his constancy, his abilities as a shepherd. It makes us wonder if really he is in control. Because if he were in control, wouldn't he grab a hold of that other person? Wouldn't he change their heart? Wouldn't he make these things change? Since God is powerful and in control and all-knowing and good, and we are sheep in the care of such a God, why wouldn't we rest in the unknown? Well, it's because in those moments when we feel fear, when we feel that everything's out of control we again start to wonder if maybe we misunderstood who God was at the first. And then we take matters into our own hands. Rather than resting in God, we try to become little gods. We hoard manna. We say, I won't trust in a provider God, I will provide for myself. We say, I'm not going across that river. I will be a little God. I will keep my family safe here in the desert. We say no to God's invitation to step out into a faith adventure and we return into the miserable but predictable desert of the life as you have ordered it. It's a scary thing to follow a God whose thoughts are not our thoughts <laughs> and whose ways are not our ways. Sometimes we settle out into the mediocrity of desert life. We're satisfied with it to an extent. We're like people miserably pacing on a raft that we hate, looking out on a sea that we fear, and we're afraid to dive in and swim for an island because we can't see it, even though the map says it's there. We don't trust, so we stay. And we linger in the midst of mediocrity, misery, the crushing inner feeling that we're not living out of our design. These things are poison to the soul, but we drink them up. 
(laughs) And fear is what makes us do it very often. And so I think this is a very important thing to see. I know you believe in God, but do you believe in God as he's revealed himself in the Bible? It's very important that we be people of the book because when fear comes, we instantly say, we instantly buy Satan's line in the garden. Did he really say? You see, Satan's still coming, whispering that line among God's people today. Did he really say that he would provide for you? Did he really mean that literally, like he's really like a shepherd and you're a sheep? Do you really believe that stuff? You must have your mind steeped in the truth of who God is to handle fear well. But what are we going to do about this? How can we defeat the fear of the unknown when it creeps in around the edges of our hearts? Sometimes in my messages, I walk away after I'm done giving them. I'll be brief here at the end. Feeling like I described a problem really well, (laughs) but I gave no practical solutions on how to step forward in obedience. We've, I think at this point in the message, uh, we're all ready to go downstairs and eat some refreshments. I get it. I'll be brief. But at this point in the message, we all have a, a sense of the problem of the fear of the unknown. But what do you do about it practically? How do you defeat it? I, I want to share with you a passage from Philippians, just in closing, that I think is the most helpful text in the Bible on defeating the fear of the unknown. Paul, writing to the the Philippian church, says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. Now, that anything, everything description is describing the nebulous swirl of ominous possibilities that is the fear of the unknown. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then this is a promise, guys. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In Philippians 4, Paul says to the Philippian church, do not be anxious about anything. And the cynic in me answers, is that even possible, Paul? Don't speak in hyperbole. We don't need platitudes. This is crazy talk. Don't be anxious about anything. I mean, honestly, that sounds like someone who is totally out of touch with reality. Is Paul naive? Is he sheltered? Is he making this pronouncement from an ivory tower somewhere? Where was Paul when he wrote the words, don't be anxious about anything? He was under house arrest in Rome, possibly awaiting execution. (laughs) This is not a man writing from a cushy office somewhere. He is not writing from air-conditioned comfort. He is not writing from St. Louis to settlers out on the frontier. He's right in the middle of it. And he writes, don't be anxious about anything. So no, he's not writing from an ivory tower. He was in a position that would have made anybody anxious. And as impossible as it seems, he still said it and he meant it. Paul had somehow learned the secret to defeat the destructive power of fearing the unknown in his life. And in this short passage, he's going to share it with the Philippians and also with us. Paul's prescription for defeating the fear of the unknown uh, contains three ingredients mixed together, and each one is essential. And the three parts are these. The first thing you have to do is to acknowledge that it's a sin. Confess it. And the second is, and he starts here with, do not be afraid. That's That's a command. And to feel fear is to sin. That's a difficult word um, in our culture today, especially, I think. But let me begin by saying I say that not with an ounce of judgment. Um, I, like all of you, am a fellow struggler. I feel fear, sometimes very strongly, which is to say I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. Uh, We do not pretend here at State Road 
to be perfectly good or righteous. We try not to put up false fronts. We rest in the perfection, the perfect righteousness of the one, Jesus. We're all sinners here. We're all on the spectrum of wrong. (laughs) And so, yeah, let's call it what it is. It's a sin. But I don't mean to throw that out there as judgment on you if this is something that you struggle with. I also struggle with sin. We all do. That's why our hope is in a perfect Savior, Jesus, not in our own goodness. But yeah, for starters, let's first call this what it is. It's a sin. And then second, instead of carrying the burden of our fears, we should cast them onto God in prayer. So Paul begins by talking about this as a sin. Then he talks about prayer. And then lastly, he says, be thankful in everything. It's kind of surprising, but as you'll see in just a minute, and I promise I'll be brief, thanksgiving is the active ingredient in this prescription. It is the one that does the transforming work. So let's just quickly go through these three steps. The first step, as I already said, is to recognize and acknowledge fear for what it is. You're not going to get far if you make excuses for your fear. Now, let's just begin by saying fear is rooted and is always betrays a lack of confidence in God. I fear because I don't trust. This is at the root of it. Fear is, in some ways, the opposite of faith. It is a symptom of unbelief. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus repeatedly admonished us not to be anxious or fearful about what we're going to eat or drink or what we're going to wear. He tells us fear can't change anything. He reminds us of God's gracious provision for all his creation, saying that if he clothes the grass of the field, if he feeds the birds, certainly he'll do that for you. And he states that anxiety is a characteristic of unbelievers. He says, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for each day has enough trouble of its own. And in 1 Peter 5, 7, Peter tells us, cast all your anxieties on God because he cares for you. So again, I don't mention that anxiety is a sin in order to heap judgment on anyone who particularly struggles with it. You're in good company. Me too. But first, we have to recognize accurately what's going on, that this is a symptom of unbelief in my heart. Let's be square about that. And after recognizing that your problem is fear and that fear is unbelief, then the next step, according to Paul, is to pray. It says, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, present your request to God. In 1 Peter 5, 7, Peter tells us, cast all your anxieties on God because he cares for you. Cast all of these things you're afraid of onto God because he cares for you personally. He is not a distant God. He is not uncaring. He, in fact, is telling you, bring them to me. When Peter tells us to do that, he is telling us to pray. Praying is letting go. It's many other things, too, but it is letting go, giving up, handing off, casting away our cares in God's direction. Two words in Philippians 4, 6 deal with prayer. The word prayer itself is a general word that covers the idea of prayer and it's uh, kind of its widest meaning. But then he also has a word here for supplication, which is more specific. It refers to a uh, special petition for some specific need. Uh, One of the most helpful things to know about prayer is that prayer is not, again, all about convincing God to do what we want Him to do. Many Christians approach prayer in precisely this way. Prayer is designed by God to move us into agreement with Him. Prayer changes you, not God. It's us who are out of position. Uh, Most often in my experience, God does not choose to change our circumstances, but oftentimes chooses to change us in the midst of our fear-filled circumstances. And what he's saying here in Philippians 4, 6 through 7 is that when we acknowledge our fear before him, and part of that acknowledgement is that it is sin rooted in unbelief, That, God, I am struggling in the midst of these fears to believe you. A lack of faith in God's power or his love or concern for you. The next thing we must do is pray. The very act of prayer confesses faith in God. 
Prayer is the moment when we stop scheming in the flesh and marshalling our resources and coming up with plans and turning in our beds. It is the moment when we look away from ourselves as the solution and turn in faith to God. Prayer is calling out from our poverty to God's abundance, our weakness to His strength. It's the bleeding of sheep to the shepherd. However, it is not enough to cast your anxieties away if we pick them right back up again. Uh, the, the truth is you have to fill your hands with something else. Uh, I'll give you this illustration. Forgive me, a lot of my illustrations have to do with my kids, not just because that's my stage of life that I'm in. Uh, but I can remember um, when, when my daughter in particular was very little. She's much older now. She never does this anymore. I kind of wish she would. <laughs> You kind of miss those days when they get a little bit older. But I can remember when she was really little, she really struggled with um, being afraid at bedtime. And she would sometimes wake up in the night with horrible dreams. And you knew it happened because you heard a scream from down the hallway like she was getting stabbed. And I'd stumble down the hallway to her bed. And it was fear of the unknown. She'd had a scary dream. It was dark. Is there something under the bed? Is there something in the closet? Now, if you're a parent, you know exactly what to do in that circumstance, right? The first thing you don't do is you say, tell me about this monster. Teeth big? (laughs) Was it scary? Did it smell bad? Is it going to eat you? If it did start to eat you, where would it start? Right? You, don't, you don't do that, do you? No. Is he going to grind your bones into dust and make flour out of it? What's he going to do? Nibble on your earlobes? Head first, probably, right? <laughs> no. Your job as a parent in that moment is to get her mind off of the scary thing and onto the very real thing to comfort her, Right? Honey, I'm going to stay right here till you fall asleep again. I'm going to be sitting right here. And then when that happens, I'm going to go down the hall. I'll be watching TV with your mother. I'll hear you if you call. I'm here. The doors are locked. You're safe. I'm watching over you. Go to sleep. You see, in that moment, what you're doing is... A lot of our prayers, by the way, look like the ridiculous thing I just described If I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm afraid of something and I just start talking to God about the thing I'm afraid of, what have I done? Nothing. I've made that scary thing the very center. All I've done is just brought it up and dwelled on it in the presence of God. No, in prayer, what you have to do is speak to yourself about who God is. This is so critically important. If you cast your anxieties on God, but then don't fill your hands with something else, they're going to boomerang right back into your hands. And this is where thanksgiving comes in. Confessing sin and praying alone will not take away your anxiety. When we we cast our anxieties onto God, it creates a vacuum, and nature abhors a vacuum. So you must fill it with thanksgiving. So here's what I do, and I've shared this with you before, Uh, but whenever I have cause to fear, like let's say the problem has to do with an issue of need. I don't know. I won't even create a hypothetical. We all know what need is. (laughs) You don't have money to address some big problem, and it's scary because you've got six kids, and you've got whatever. You you can't do it. I have six kids. You don't. You're not crazy. That's what's going on. And so what I do is when fear starts to grip my heart, and I I just start to speak to God who He is. God, I know You're the God who provided manna in the desert. I know that's who You are. God, I know for sure and certain about the widow's jar that was filled with oil day after day after day. I know when they were trapped and hemmed in by the Red Sea, you provided a miraculous way of escape. I know about rams and thickets. I know about water from rocks. I know about the pillar of 
light and the pillar of cloud that God guides. I know the words from Psalm 23, you're my shepherd, I will not want. This is your problem, and I'm yours. And after doing that, I feel lighter of heart. I'm not assured of any outcome, but I know I can do what I should do, and I'm going to trust God to do what's good to Him. And I'm going to rest in His goodness. I'm going to rest in His provision. I'm going to rest in His promises. And in this, He is glorified, and we will live most happily. I believe that. So those are the three things. If you're struggling with fear of the unknown today, I would encourage you to confess it, cast your anxieties on God, talk to Him about them, and then draw before Him with thanksgiving and just tell God in His presence your understanding of who He is and who He will be to you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank You for Your Word. Father, I thank you that in the midst of the unknown, you've given us traveling companions like these here in the room with me now. God, I thank you for brothers and sisters, and Father, we all, with one heart, united in prayer right now, thank you for being our shepherd, God. Father, as, uh, as we've spent time in this difficult topic this morning, Father, all of us in the midst of different circumstances have fear of the unknown to some degree. Father, there are things that we look at in the future. It's a big old question mark. There's things we desperately want. We're afraid. We don't know how it'll happen or if it will. But God, I pray that you would give us either a vision to sustain us, some promised outcome that we can pray for and believe in as we continue, Or, God, you would give us a clear, unambiguous sense of what is the right thing to do in in this moment, and we will just trust you to do what seems good to you. But, Father, we look to you and trust you're our shepherd, God, you're our provider, you're the source and supply. Father, help us to live lives that are glorifying to you, that show you to be the excellent, faithful, promise-keeping God that you are as we live in the midst of these things. We trust you. We love you. Help us to do this more. In Jesus' name, amen.